Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we are going to take a look at verses 19, 19 to 26. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 to 26. Funny enough, I was hoping to get through the rest of the entire chapter this morning, but uh, I ended up only getting through five verses, so I'm sorry. I have a feeling Deuteronomy is going to be longer than I expected, all right? (laughs) It always works out that way. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 to 26. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, beginning in chapter 1, verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb... And went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up. Take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us that we may explore the land, that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskal and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, so after the previous generation of Israelites had dwelt at the base of Mount Sinai, or Horeb, again, Horeb and Sinai are the same place. Deuteronomy prefers to use the word Horeb to describe it. Exodus chooses to use the Sinai to describe it. Two names for the same place. After dwelling at the base of Horeb in the wilderness for 11 months and 20 days, Last week we learned that during this time, the Lord through his servant organized the people and the nation of Israel and prepared them for what was to come as they set out from Horeb in the direction of Canaan. Canaan being the land that God had promised to the Israelites through their forefathers. So during that year at the base of Sinai, the Lord gathered an undisciplined and disorganized group of people and he brought them to order. And he did this by doing a few things. First, by revealing his perfect law to them, all of his rules and all of his statutes, all of his commands and all of his precepts, all of which his chosen people of Israel were supposed to and called to live by as his royal priesthood, as his holy nation. And they were to do this both in the wilderness on the way to the promised land and then subsequently when they got into the promised land, this is how they were to live from that point on. 
The Lord also, in this year, ordered and organized the people of Israel by outlining and commissioning certain gifted men for the purpose of constructing the tabernacle. The tabernacle in Israel was the dwelling place of God among the people. And these men were gifted by the Lord to construct it, but not just the tabernacle itself, but also everything that was associated with it. The furniture in the tabernacle, the altar, the utensils, the incense, and all of the rest. The Lord also, during this year, established and consecrated the priesthood. The men who were tasked with the duty and the privilege of leading and guiding and directing and guarding and protecting the worship of our Lord's most glorious majesty. Men who were assigned the function of ensuring that the people of the Lord worship the Lord rightly and appropriately according to the prescriptions set down by the Lord himself. The Lord also numbered the men of fighting age in the nation, and he organized 12 tribal encampments around the tabernacle, and they were to organize themselves in this manner every time they broke camp and set themselves up somewhere else. And as they went out, and when they set out, when their fathers, the generation before the one spoken of in Deuteronomy, set out from Sinai, Moses reminded them here in verse 19 of what it was that their fathers saw when they traversed and traveled through the wilderness. Look at it again here in verse 19. Then we, that's the previous generation, set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. So the Lord told Israel, it's time to break camp, time to move towards the promised land, because this is the land that God is going to give you. And it was during this time when they broke camp and as they started moving towards the promised land that they faced the difficulties of the wilderness. The wilderness is not an easy place to trek through. And the people quickly, it didn't take long, they quickly took to murmuring and complaining among themselves from tent to tent to tent. And you can see in verse 19, right? Moses is a realist. He understands that this wilderness that they're traveling through, it's not an easy place to travel through. He said it right here. The wilderness is a treacherous place. He called it a great and terrifying wilderness. You see those words? A great and terrifying wilderness. Yes, Israel, we are to set out and move to Canaan, and it's not going to be easy as we make our way to the promised land. Other translations will expand on the, wor- the sense of the, these words. Some translations will use the word uh, fearsome or terrible or forbidding. And other texts describe in greater detail the difficulties that the Israelites would have faced as they moved through this desert from Sinai to the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15, for example, there Moses, telling the people never to forget the Lord who brought them up out of Egypt, reminded the people with these words about the difficulties of the wilderness, saying this, God led you through the great and terrifying wilderness, and listen, Deuteronomy eight fifteen, with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Anybody care to traverse a wilderness like this? A wilderness of snakes and scorpions and very little water. That sounds awful to me. 
And later on, the prophet Jeremiah also, speaking the word of the Lord to that generation of Israelites, recounted the Lord's faithfulness in the wilderness as well, saying this in Jeremiah 2, verse 6, Israel did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness? Listen, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through where no man dwells. Are you starting to see the picture of this wilderness and its expansive and forbidding nature? This desert, it was a, this wilderness was a land of deserts and pits. It was a land so forbidding that no man dwelt there and no man passed through there. But that was the very spot that the Lord was going to lead his people Israel through. After taking them out from slavery in Egypt, he led them to Sinai to arrange them and administrate them. And then when he called them to leave Horeb and head toward Canaan, he brought them through this exact wilderness filled with fiery serpents, no water, and scorpions. And the Lord would provide for them as he did. But as we read in Numbers 10, so when you're reading Deuteronomy 1, the bigger story or the more fleshed out story of what Moses is talking about is found in Numbers 10 to 13, 10 to 14. In Numbers 10, we see that it didn't take long as they set out from, this, uh, from the base of Sinai for them to start complaining about the difficulties they faced as they began their traveling. And this group of Israelites, this group proved to be a complaining generation of entitled people who moaned and whined and grumbled as they broke camp. And they even went so far as to move past groaning and whining and mumbling to looking back at their time in Egypt and revising it, glamorizing it, and romanticizing what they should remember as a brutal history. It's only been one year since they left, and they're already forgetting what it was like for them when they lived in Egypt, enslaved. In that year that, the, that they sat at the base of Sinai, they seem to have forgotten already the whips, the grueling and exhausting labor, the inhumane treatment that they endured at the hands of their Egyptian overlords. They failed to remember their downcast disposition, not just theirs, but that of the whole nation. They failed to remember their broken spirits and their constant groaning, a groaning that was so deep that it reached the ears of the Lord, and he took it upon himself to deliver them from that harsh enslavement. See, the picture here, or the lesson that we can learn or note, is that you and I as believers in the New Covenant, we too have been promised a land. We too have been promised a heavenly city by our God. And now we must faithfully and obediently traverse the wilderness that we find ourselves in on the way there. And you know we all live in this world together, right? You and I all know that this world is filled with its troubles and its trials and its hardships. It too has its metaphorical fiery snakes and scorpions and, and deserts and pits and droughts and deep darkness. Some of you are probably traversing those right now. Some of you probably feel right now that you are being bitten by those scorpions and bitten by those snakes. And you want and are maybe perhaps complaining and whining and murmuring, Lord, what are you doing in my life right now? 
This wilderness that we call earth can indeed be a great and terrifying place filled with difficulties and full of corruptions and pains and death and lack and sickness and persecution. But you and I can learn a lesson from the Israelites because you and I as the people of faith in Jesus Christ, we look forward to the fact that God has promised us a heavenly city. God has promised us a place, and so we live in this world looking forward to the prize. We don't look back like Lot's wife did. We don't linger as Lot did, but we remember that the Lord is with us, and so we praise Him. As difficult as it might be when you are being bitten by a scorpion, we are stung by a scorpion, We praise Him at all times, and we must keep ourselves at all times from murmuring and complaining and whining and moaning, all of which represent or reveal in in our own lives a heart that is rebellious against the Lord, that lacks trust and faith in the Lord as He leads us through this wilderness. For Israel, all of these things that they had experienced during their time of enslavement in Egypt, they'd all been forgotten because they had now fixated themselves or their minds on this new circumstance they find themselves in. To them, their food predicament dominated their thoughts. You might think to yourself, they're whining and moaning and complaining about the food that they have. Do they have no food at all? The answer to that question would be, they did have food. You'd be wrong to think they had no food because you know that the Lord had provided for them each and every day this thing called manna. Manna means, what is it? Right? (laughs) It's a funny name. What is it? They didn't know what it was, but it came down from heaven for them each and every day. The Lord provided for them each and every day. And you might think, well, maybe the manna tasted terrible. Maybe the Lord was giving them something that tasted like fill-in-the-blank, whatever food you think is worst, the worst thing you could eat. Maybe it tasted like that. But again, you'd be wrong. Exodus chapter 16, verse 31 tells us that manna was like coriander seed, white, and listen, the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Now, I will tell you, I've heard people complain about all sorts of food in my life, but there is one food I've never heard anyone say anything bad about, honey. I'm not sure about your particular taste palette, but again, honey is wonderful. That's why, husbands, we call our wives honey. (laughs) But for this generation of Israelites traveling through the wilderness, it wasn't enough. And do you see how they zeroed in on this one seeming problem, on this one craving, to the point that it came to dominate the entirety of their minds? to color their perspective on everything else that was going around them, to tyrannize their attention to the point that they forget almost everything else that the Lord is doing for them. They forgot every blessing in their lives as they fixated on this one thing that was going in a way that they didn't appreciate in their lives. This one thing that wasn't meeting their expectation. This one thing that in their minds they believed they lacked. Variety in their diet. It's the same situation that humanity has been struggling with since the beginning. It's the same situation that Eve faced in the garden when the, when the serpent came in and turned her attention to that one forbidden tree. You remember that, right, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3? 
Instead of considering the blessings of the Lord that were all around her, the Lord had given to her every single tree in the garden except that one. But instead of turning her eyes to any of the other thousand trees around her, each one with its own delicious fruit, she forgot, she minimized, she ignored the good word of God's generous blessing to her and Adam and fixated on the one tree that the Lord said, from this tree you must not eat. She fixed her eyes on what she didn't have, on what she couldn't have, rather than on the numerous blessings in her life. And it allowed, allowed that to lead her into a grievous sin against the Lord. And in like manner, as the Israelites are now trekking through the wilderness on their way to Kadesh Barnea, to the hill country of the Amorites, all they can think about is the fact that their diet lacks variety. Not even considering this fact or this reality, that if it wasn't for the Lord, they'd have nothing at all. funny the other day I found myself coming home from a long day and my stomach was a little bit rumbly and so I ran into the house and I opened the door of the fridge and I was rummaging through and I'm pushing things aside and you know what it's like when you're hungry and you get a little irritated and I'm like I'm pushing things all over I'm pushing apples here and peaches there and celery here and there's nothing in here to eat I run to the pantry and I'm pushing crackers aside and granola bars aside. I'm like, where is all the food in this house? I caught myself complaining and I remember in the moment of doing it, I'm preaching on this on Sunday. What is wrong with me? I just wrote a whole page on this and here I am doing exactly what the Israelites did. Complaining about the lack of something that I wanted in that fridge at that moment when there was a whole bunch of great food in there. I could have cut up a nice tomato, put some salt in it, could have cut a cucumber, could have ate some celery, maybe put some peanut butter in it. I don't know if you guys like that or not. I have never really eaten it. No, you don't like it. Yeah. Could have eaten a banana. It's a whole bunch of stuff to eat. But here I am. There's nothing. There's nothing. For Israel in the wilderness, the manna wasn't enough. And this fixation on this reality caused them to forget or to ignore the numerous ways in which the Lord has revealed to them and confirmed to them His loving kindness, His careful oversight of their life and their journey through the wilderness. As they thought about food, hear this, as they thought about their lack of food, not even the visible pillar of smoke and the visible pillar of fire was enough to halt their murmuring. And again, Israel here is a mirror. It's easy for us to look back at Israel and say, what, what, are they, what a bunch of fools, they didn't even get it. But Israel is a mirror into our lives. It is a picture of us. We're not any different than these folks. We too can be just as ignorant and just as careless with regard to the Lord's abundant goodness and blessing and provision in our lives when we have a strong craving for some particular thing that we do not possess. 
When we have a desire for some activity that is forbidden by the Lord, we can forget about the family around us or the homes that we live in or the food that we eat or the water we drink or the air that we breathe. We can overlook the Lord's ordering of regular seasons, the rising of the sun each and every morning. I mean, my yard is set just so that it faces the sunrise every morning. I get the beautiful picture of the sunrise. It's perfect. You guys can come over if you want and check out the sunrise with me. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And I'm constantly reminded as I go to the sink to get some water to put into the coffee machine, as I look out, boom, there's the sun rising, and it never gets tiring. We forget the beauty of the flowers and the beauty of the trees and the beauty of the gardens that we drive by and that we live among. You and I are at all times surrounded by thousands upon thousands, by myriads upon myriad blessings that we simply do not take the time to contemplate and to recognize, all of which declare the glory of God and all of which are given to you and I, his children, as blessings. It's like stubbing your toe. And not just any toe. Let's say it's like stubbing the third toe in. You know that one right beside your pinky toe, in between, you know, in between your big toe and then that one that's longer than your big toe, you know, the one that's in there. The toe you never think about, ever. I never think about the third toe in. Until I hit it against the corner of a wall. And then, it's all I can think about. I never thank God for that toe. Until I hit it and I think, I wish this toe would go back to being just non-painful. And all I can think of is, Lord, I remember the days when you blessed me with a third toe that wasn't sore. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? You have a, a toothache or an earache or something, something that normally you don't think about, and then when it's sore, all you can think about is the times when the Lord blessed you with no pain there. Be praising the Lord right now for the fact that generally speaking, depending on your age, there's no pain in a lot of places in your body. And if there is pain in one place, your back is sore or something, remember your leg or remember the third toe in on your foot. Okay? Even with all of this around us, when one thing in our lives does not go as planned, for Israel it was the lack of dietary variety. For you and I, it might be a variety of things. It might be failing health. It might be a feeling of loneliness. It might be that we're not making as much money as we thought we would at this, this time in our life. It might be that we're not getting the respect that we think we deserve at this time in our life. It might be another person not treating us as well as we think we should be treated. It might be that we haven't reached a certain goal in our life or we haven't achieved a certain thing that we hoped that we would have achieved at this time in our life. And we begin to fix our eyes on that one thing that we don't possess, that one situation that is not going as we would have it to go, and we set all of our attention on that thing or that person that is bothering us, and we forget everything else that the Lord is doing in our life as we fixate on that one thing. And we begin to murmur about it and to complain about it and to get bent out of shape about it. Oh, if I could just have this or that, I'd be at peace. If I could just attain this, I'd be happy. But listen, it never works that way. 
Because there will always be something else our flesh wants. When you get whatever it is, and, and again, you probably know this in your own life, right? There's been a time in your life where you said, I just want this. You get it, and for a little while, yeah, you feel good, and then boom, it's on to the next thing. That's just who we are. That's what we're like. Same thing as Israel. There's always going to be something else that we think we need for contentment and satisfaction if we're not loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So don't allow the regularity of the things around you. Don't let the fact that God's blessings in your life are repeated so that, they, like, that they're happening to you all the time to the point that you forget about them. Don't forget. Search your life. Take stock of your life. Take stock of everything around you and remember the blessings of God. Become familiar with them. Don't allow them to become mundane and unexceptional. Things we see all the time tend to get that way, right? The sun comes up every single morning because God commands it to do so. Now, that might be in a, a predictable event that we've witnessed a thousand times or we've heard about a thousand times, but that doesn't lessen the fact that it is an excellent and glorious work of God for your blessing. It's like someone may be visiting you from a far-off country, and during their stay with you, they'll say something like, ah, you know what, you know, I, I would love to go to Niagara Falls. I've heard about Niagara Falls. Can we go to Niagara Falls? And we all live kind of near the falls. So you and I, we've probably been there five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. We've seen it a bunch of times. And we have no desire to fight the traffic to go down there and see it again and see all of the, the Lundy's Lane stuff over there and the Frankensteins over here and the different things that are all up that street. But to your friend, who for the very first time, for whom this is the first time, they're mesmerized, they're awe-inspired, and you wonder, what is, why is this such a big deal? Because we've forgotten the wonders of God's work all around us. It's like if you were to go and visit your friend who lives in, say, Rome or Paris or Calcutta or the Congo or Japan or the Amazon, and you were to say, take me to some of the sites there. Sites to them that are commonplace. Sites to them that have lost their luster. You'd go and you'd be mesmerized. They might say to you, how many times can someone look at the Colosseum? But I would say... I love that Roman Empire, and I think about it all the time. <laughs> They'd be amazed at how amazed you are by the things that they no longer find that wonderful anymore. Do not let familiarity lead you to forgetfulness. May it never be that we, like the Israelites of old, neglect and forget to contemplate the wonderful, varied numerous blessings and mercies of God that are all around us all the time. And the same is true when it comes to the people around us. Our brothers and our sisters in Christ, listen, we're not all going to agree on every single issue every time. And our opinions on numerous topics and concerns and practices and subjects will oftentimes be different and yet, even so, the call to each one of us who truly loves Jesus is to keep yourself from murmuring about your brother or your sister. To keep yourself from going from tent to tent to tent and talking about how you're really upset with the way this person sees this issue or that issue or that subject. This is what the, wilderness, the Israelites in the wilderness did, and it angered God. We are called to love and to forgive one another as Christ has loved and forgiven us. We are called, as Colossians 3.13 tells us, to bear with one another. We are called, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.8, 
Love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I say all this because in like manner to the Israelites whose craving led them to filter out everything in life at that moment or to filter everything in their lives through their craving to the point that they ignored and forgot about all the blessings around them, so too can we as we listen to, as we are trained by, as our minds are shaped and conformed and molded to the patterns of the world that we live in, so too can we begin to filter our entire view of another person through the lens of something we don't like about their opinions or their viewpoints or their practices. They raise their kids differently than me. I don't want anything to do with them. And we forget the many and varied ways by which the Lord blesses us through those very same people. You and I aren't going to agree on everything. You and you aren't going to agree on everything. But that does not mean that you and I are not a tremendous blessing to one another at every single minute. Well-meaning Christians can disagree on a host of things and yet still be a source of encouragement for one another, edification, exhortation, sanctification, and even laughter and joy. If only we would keep ourselves from relating to one another as though we were, each one of us is the sum total of one particular opinion. That's what our world is fond of doing. We live in a world that will brand people as either left or right and hate you or love you depending on that label. Correct or erroneous, virtuous or bigoted, and I would say this, may it never be that we are so careless and so flippant and so plain sinful in our responses to one another. May we never find it easy and natural to murmur and complain about a fellow believer with whom we disagree. May we never become like the Israelites in the wilderness. May we instead be so full of the wonders of God's glory and goodness that no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, be it poverty, be it some great and terrible wilderness filled with fiery serpents and scorpions, may it, even if we have to eat the same meal every day, let us repeatedly call to mind the many and varied ways that God has led us and blessed us along the paths of life. Always hold before you the wonders of the God that you serve so that when a strong desire or craving arises in you, when an unmet desire threatens to derail your joy in the Lord, to cause you to mistrust His goodness, to want you to lead you to disobey his word because you think that in that moment disobedience would bring you more happiness than obedience. I pray that there would be no room for any of that to be a, a reality in your life because your heart is so filled with praise and captivated by the blessedness of the Lord. Back to Israel. Even so, with all the complaining, the Lord still led them along the way. He led them to Kadesh Barnea, to the borders of the promised land. And this rest stop should have only been temporary. This location here at Kadesh Barnea was supposed to be the launching point to a victorious conquest of the land. But here, at the edge of the hill country of the Amorites, the people would only amplify their rebellion from a desire for more food 
or for a more gray, a greater selection of food to open rebellion against the Lord. As the people of Israel camped at Kadesh Barnea, in verse 20, you see this. Moses said to them, You have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. So that verb there, the Lord our God is giving us, is an imminent future tense, meaning it is a sure thing that this land is going to be given to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Look at the land. It is right there before you. Verse 21, see, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Or look, there it is. Cast your eyes on Canaan, the land that the Lord is about to give to Abraham's offspring. Go on up and take it. Now, I want you to notice, while the Lord has already promised the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord has already promised the land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here in this moment, he calls on the people to take action. You see that? Go up. Claim the land. Lay hold of it. Take ownership of it. It is yours. All you have to do is move in. The keys are already in the door. Turn the deadbolt. Open the door. Take possession of the house. It's not like the Lord is calling them to some blind leap of faith either. Oftentimes, we hear people speak about faith as though it's some sort of hopeful leap into the, into the dark without any sort of proof of, of anything. But listen, the Lord here is calling on Israel to press forward in faith because faith for them is the confident assurance in what they have seen in the ways that the Lord has already revealed to them his loving kindness and care and power for them. Faith is confidence in the Lord who has proven himself faithful over and over and over again. To the nation of Israel, God showed his power and faithfulness to them in the Exodus itself. This generation is the generation who saw the Lord work on their behalf. For us, we see the faithfulness of God in sending Christ in sending Christ to live a perfect, sinful, sinless life, to die a sin-bearing, sin-atoning death, to, in raising Jesus on the third day and offering to every single human being in the world forgiveness and eternal life in Christ, provided they believe, repent of their sin and believe in his name. And the call goes out to humanity in general, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin, turn to him in faith, and you will be saved by grace, through that faith in his name. The scriptures are clear. Our God is faithful and just to forgive all who confess their sin and believe in Jesus. So like it is for us, it's not a blind faith. It's a reasoned, confident faith. In the same way the call to the Israelites is, I'm not calling you, I'm not telling you to leap into the dark. I'm telling you to remember what you saw with your own eyes. You saw my power work on your behalf. You watched me destroy the most powerful military force in the planet before your very eyes. And guess what? You didn't have to lift a single sword. The Lord did it all. And so the Lord, having proven his glorious power, he told the people, do not fear. 
meaning do not be anxious, do not be nervous, do not be apprehensive about entering and taking the land. Don't hesitate, don't linger in the wilderness, don't pause as you look at the land and see that there could be people there that you think are pretty strong. Remember that the Lord is with you, remember that he fights for you, and do not be dismayed. Meaning, do not allow fear and terror to rob you of your courage. When you see what will appear to you to be insurmountable obstacles to your taking the land, do not be dismayed. Do not be sapped of your courage. And this is a repeated command in Scripture from page one to the last. Do not fear. The Lord is with you. Advance. Go. For the Israelite, it was go in and take possession. For us, it is go in the knowledge that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. In either case, the Lord goes before his people as they hear his call to advance, and he fights for them. And the Lord repeats this, whether it's to the first generation of Israelites leaving the promised land, to the next generation of Israelites about to enter into the promised land, to us today who sit here trying to advance into a dark world. See, the wilderness generation 40 years later, hoping to succeed where their fathers had failed, to them the Lord said this in Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 to 4. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, You shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. And if you move on into the New Testament, the disciples, and by extension us as well, we are exhorted in Matthew chapter 10 by the Lord Jesus Christ when he said in verse 26 and following, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. That's everyone aside from the Lord himself. Meaning don't fear anyone, but instead fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the Lord. The only one you fear is the Lord. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, as believers, we are called to courageously and boldly, A, proclaim to the world the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, and B, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers, to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead to expose them. And both of these things, you and I know it, both of these things will elicit a response from the evil world that we live in. A response that could very well bring us 
to fear and hesitation and dismay. Which is why the Lord repeatedly tells us, I'm on your side. I am fighting for you. Go. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. For the first generation of Israelites, those who were directly liberated from bondage in Egypt, as they encamped on the borders of Canaan, it seems as though, what I see in the text, is they were, at the very beginning, ready and willing to follow the Lord's command. And hearing the call to fearlessness, they approached Moses, in verse 22 of Deuteronomy 1, and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. So the people went and asked Moses to send an uh, as of yet unspecified number of men to go in and check out the land. And Numbers 13 tells us what they actually were hoping to see checked out. Numbers 13 verses 18 and 20. Send them to see what the land is. And whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. And then the Lord would go on to specify to Moses the number of spies and from whom you would draw the spies to send them into the land. In Numbers 13.1, the Lord said to Moses, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. So the Lord told Moses, Send as spies twelve important and influential men one from each of the 12 tribes, to scout out the land. And in obedience, our text in Deuteronomy 1, verses 23 and 24, we read that Moses took 12 men from the Israelites, one man from each tribe, and they turned, went up into the hill country, and came to the valley of Eskal and spied it out. Numbers 13, verse 23 tells us, when they got to this valley, this valley of Eskal, the abundance of the fruit there was noteworthy. Indeed, the land that God is giving them is wonderful and plentiful and abundant. Numbers 13, 23 says, They cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. It took two men to carry this cluster of grapes. And they brought some of the pomegranates and figs. And when these men returned to the Israelite camp and they showed all of the fruit to the people, some of them piped up in verse 25 and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Numbers gives us a little bit more detail in Numbers 13, 27. They said, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and here is some of its fruit. In other words, the Lord was right about the plentiful bounty of this land. It is indeed an excellent and pleasing land. And those who take possession of the land will surely be blessed. But that won't be us. Because we learned a few other things when we were there as well. Not only is the land arrayed and filled with delicious food, the very food that they were complaining about, right? Right? The very food they wanted so desperately 
is all right there. But the people who presently live in the land, the people who enjoy the food in the land right now, they're much too strong for us to conquer. We couldn't possibly take possession of this good land. We must instead, this is 10 of the spies speaking, we must instead stand on the outside looking in. And so these 10 spies, filled with fear at the prospect of advancing into the land in obedience and trust to the Lord, because they were afraid, they, thought, they sought to demoralize the rest of the people. They sought to bring a people who were confident, expectant, and ready to enter into the land down to their level of paralysis, to their level of refusing to trust God's word. And they said this in Numbers 13, 28 and 29. While the fruit of the land is great, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill countries. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So you see, ten of the spies, they were gripped with fear. And so they said, the cities, the walls of these cities are like up to the heavens. And the people in the land, they're strong, they're well-trained in the art of warfare. And along with all of this, they said, along with all of this, we also saw the sons of Anak. The sons of Anak, or the Anakim, were a race of giant men. We're not going to spend our time with them here because we're going to see them in Deuteronomy 3 where we'll get a bigger picture. All we need to know is that Deuteronomy 3 tells us that the Lord had already led them to victory over this race of giant men before. To these ten spies... All of this is enough to doubt the promise and the power of the Lord. These men saw God deliver Israel from Egypt, and here they are now saying, nope, God doesn't have the power to lead us here. Sure, he's guaranteed to us the victory, but you guys didn't see how organized and fortified and strong and large the people in the land are. And it was at this moment, as the people, these ten spies were trying to demoralize Israel, that the two other spies spoke up. In Numbers 13.30, Caleb and Joshua, they spoke up, they piped up, and they said, don't listen to this, guys. Listen, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. So you got ten fearful guys, two faithful guys. Caleb and Joshua, in other words, were saying, what, what is going on with you ten? Would you listen to yourselves? Why are you so afraid? Why are you so dismayed? Listen, the Lord has already told us to go in and take possession. So with him going before us and with him fighting on our behalf, how could we possibly lose this war? What possible reason do you and I have to be afraid of anything or anyone? You know walls? Those walls you're complaining about? Guess what? Sometimes walls, they fall, right? Militaries, guess what? They fall. Giants and Anakim, you've heard the old saying, the bigger they are, the harder they what? You guessed it, fall. But the ten, they reasserted themselves and they responded to Caleb's bad report by amplifying it and just plain lying. Numbers 13, 32 and 33, they said, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. 
And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And, to, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Now, did you notice a few changes here? See what their fear led them to do. They started altering to, the truth to fit their narrative, to fit their fear. When they returned from the land, what is it that they immediately said? In verse 25, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us, right? You remember that? Boom, that's what they said. This is a good land, flowing with milk and honey. And guess what? Here is some of the fruit of the land. And now, to keep the people from going up into the land, at the prospect of people actually living out the command of the Lord because they're afraid, at the prospect of people actually listening to the words of Caleb and Joshua to faithfully advance into the land, they say this, the land devours its inhabitants. How do you go from it's a great land to it devours its inhabitants? Fear. It's a difficult environment that kills the people that live in it. And they added this outright lie. Remember, they started, with, they started by saying, we saw some of the sons of Anak there. We saw some giants there. And here in Numbers 13, 33, they say, uh, all of them, right, you see that? All the people we saw in it are of great height. So it went from we saw the sons of Anak to they're all the sons of Anak. And then they added this, we saw the Nephilim, you know, those guys from whom the sons of Anak come. Now, the Nephilim are referred to in Genesis chapter 6 as the byproduct of relationships between demons and the daughters of men. The Nephilim were a prime reason why God chose to flood the earth. They were all destroyed, and the Lord restarted everything with the man, Noah, and his family, who were themselves not of the Nephilim. They're all gone. But you see these men lying here to inspire more fear in the people so that they don't go up in obedience to the Lord. This is what fear does. It's a tactic of the fearful to bring people to their side, to keep them from pressing forward. They give outright falsehoods and they make the situation seem far worse than it actually is. Listen, every single time that there's a command in the law of the Lord in Scripture, there is going to be a thousand reasons for you to disobey it. A thousand reasons for me to disobey it. A thousand reasons to be dismayed and to fear. But the Lord says to us, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. There will always be something tempting us to faithlessness to his word. But one of the lessons we are taught and one of the lessons that is reiterated over and over and over again to us is that the Lord is going to defeat all of his enemies. He's the one fighting the battle, so we don't need to fear. Our world loves to fearmonger because it knows, and we see it in the text, that when you produce and promote fear among the people, those people are easier to manipulate and to control. The, fear, the, ten, the ten spies who inspired fear were able to control an entire nation, to keep an entire nation from going up in obedience. It's the power of fear to immobilize godly people. Fear keeps us at a standstill. It turns people against each other, keeps us from working together. It grips us and sends our thoughts spiraling in the direction of catastrophe. 
And if we live in a state of fearfulness, we, like the Israelites on the borders of Canaan, on the borders of the promised land, we also will not go up. But will instead rebel at the command, rebel against the command of the Lord. See, the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God grows as we obey the call of Jesus Christ to go up into the world, to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And as knees bow in submission to the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, the kingdom, the kingdom citizenry grows. But as we labor to do that, there will be many, many both inside the visible church and outside the body who bring fearful and bad reports just like the ten spies did. And you will always have people like Caleb in the church too saying, it doesn't matter what they're saying, let's go up, let's do what the Lord said. Who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to those who themselves are fearful And so in order to justify their own lack of movement and obedience, they try to get you on their side so that they can feel a little more comfortable with no movement? Are you going to listen when people say, hey, 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 don't stand on the street corners telling people to repent. That's kind of offensive. You shouldn't be doing that. Why are they telling you that? Because they don't want to do it. Let your life be the gospel. If necessary, use words. You know how much I hate that phrase. The gospel is to be spoken with words. I mean, you don't want to be thought of as one of those Bible thumpers, do you? You don't want to be considered by the world as one of them closed-minded Bible people, do you? Who speak so exclusively about Jesus being the way that the people around you feel marginalized and excluded? You don't want to be one of those, do you? Every time I say, well, yeah, that's exactly what I want to be. That's what you should say, too. I choose to go up in in obedience to the Lord to advance with the gospel of the kingdom. You, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow your knee to the king. Enter into the kingdom. You, be forgiven. They might get upset. How often I hear about professing Christians speaking about the offense and the hatred of the world being to them a larger consideration that we must think about than the command of Christ to go into the world and clearly articulate the gospel and make disciples. The command of Christ supersedes anything the world says. But I digress. The ten spies and the fact that the Israelite people side with them over Caleb and Joshua reveals the utter hypocrisy of the people. Now compare and contrast what's happened in this short time. The spies revealed the goodness of the land... And Moses reminded the wilderness generation in Deuteronomy 8, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water and fountains and springs flowing out in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. In other words, this land possesses everything that you've been complaining about lacking in the wilderness. You want more food? It's there. I'm going to give it to you. Go. You want free-flowing water from brooks and springs? It's there. Your stomach will never growl. Go. There you can use the iron and the copper as weapons for defense. There you will live in stable home, free from trials and discomforts of the desert that is filled with snakes and scorpions, and Israel, you will live as a free people in the land. 
These were the three choices that were available to this people. It's the same three choices we have. Go up and take possession of the good land and enjoy its blessings. Continue to dwell in the harsh wilderness where food and water are scarce and snakes and scorpions threaten. Or return to Egypt and re-engage with a life of slavery. The fearful ten will keep people in the wilderness or cause them to return to Egypt. The two faithful will inspire the people to take hold of the promises and the blessings of God. Sadly, in that time, the voices of the fearful spies won the day, and the people of Israel did not go up, but instead they rebelled against the command of the Lord. How they rebelled, that'll be our subject for next week. But for this week, my prayer is that we will leave here this morning with a renewed sense of courage, with a renewed sense of fearlessness, with a renewed sense of the call to go and to advance, to not be afraid, to not be dismayed, because the Lord our God goes ahead of us and fights for us. Let us take note of the promises of the word in the same way that our Lord told Israel to fear not because he is with them. Jesus Christ told us in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. So in closing, as we are his witnesses to the very end of the earth, he's with us always. He's with us as we love each other genuinely, as we abhor evil, as we hold fast to what is good, as we leave vengeance in his hands and instead repay evil with good, as we expose sin and the deeds of darkness. He's with us as we die to ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus in this hostile world. He's with us as we call sinners out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. He's with us as we strive to do all things for the glory of God. He's with us as we dwell in this world as exiles and sojourners, fixing our hope on the better and greater city that is to be ours. He's with us as we wage war, destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. He's with us as we put on the whole armor of God and we stand in the strength of his might against the schemes of the devil. He's with us as we forget what lies behind and we press on to what lies ahead. He's with us as we strive to be lights in a world that is bent on darkness. In all of these, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, let us never fear, but may we go up and take possession of the land, so to speak. Let us never be like the Israelites who on this day rebelled against the Lord and refused to advance according to his command, but instead let us, as those in whom the Holy Spirit lives, always remember and always hold fast to the promise that Israel of old ignored. Do not fear or be dismayed. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we honor you for the encouragements and the exhortations that you've given us in, the, in this word this morning. And Lord, I know fear is one of those things that can creep up on us quite easily. It's something that all of us at some point in time will struggle with, even those who pretend like they're never afraid. All of us need and require the power of your spirit to go up and to take possession, to go up and to proclaim, to go up and make disciples. So I ask that you would give us a 
all as a body of believers a spirit of boldness and courage. I pray that you would always hold before us those words. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be dismayed because you fight for us. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.